Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Uh, today, I'm delighted to talk to Sheikh Hamza Karamali. You're most welcome again, sir. Thank you for having me again, Paul. It's a pleasure to be with you. Pleasure to have you. Now, for those who don't know, Hamza is the founder of Basira Education, where he trains parents, teachers, and scholars in high schools, weekend religious schools, and a variety of other educational institutions how to show their students why Islam is true. He's developed a textbook, an online teacher's portal, and is on a mission to train 10,000 teachers. And I'll link to his work in the description below. Hamza will be speaking today about Abu Hanifa, who was a Muslim theologian, jurist, uh, who became the eponymous founder of the Hanafi school of Sunni jurisprudence, which has remained the most widely practiced uh, school of law in the Muslim world. Yeah. And it's reported, actually, that he personally met a, a number of the Sahaba. These are the actual companions of the Prophet. Uh, including uh, Anas ibn Malik. So he's an incredibly early and significant figure in Muslim history. And uh, he's famous for authoring this book, the, the Kitab al-Athar of Imam Abu Hanifa. Obviously, this is the English translation, a huge, great big wedge, a brick of a book. And it is actually the first book of Islam after the time of the Companions. So it's a really important work. It's basically full of hadith. And it's uh, I've been reading it earlier on again, and it's really interesting, actually, even today. Um, so, um, Sheikh Hamza, could you perhaps, uh, who was Imam Abu Hanifa, and why is he so important? So, as you said, the reason why he's normally held to be important is because he's the founder of one of the four schools of Sunni Islamic law or jurisprudence. He, but I think there's another reason, and that reason is why he's one of my favorite scholars. Um, and that reason is that he was a publicly revered scholar. Um, people respected him, people looked up to him, and he commanded um, public opinion to such a degree that um, caliphs sought out his approval. Um, he refused to give it to them. He was, uh, he was a person of integrity. Um, and he was an independent scholar. Um, he didn't have any outside influence. Um, and he took a number of dangerous public stands during his lifetime. Because of that, he won the love of the Muslim masses. And um, I think that, uh, that these events that took place around him, they capture something that's very um, surprising, but very special about early Islamic civilization that we should know about much more. Wow. And he wasn't an Arab, was he? he I mean, people, I must have been an Arab, but he wasn't, was he? <laughs> That's right. He wasn't. And um, he actually, most scholars um, before his time, just shortly before his time, um, they weren't Arab. And that comes as a surprise. I have this, I have this snippet. It's a famous um, conversation that took place be between one of the caliphs and one of the scholars of the time. Um, and... So, to people that know, a caliph was uh, the Muslim ruler. So he wasn't just like like yeah. the pope, like a spiritual figurehead type yeah. guy. He was an actual ruler who had political and military power. So to speak uh, to him was really important. It wasn't just some kind of figurehead. Yeah, and this difference between a caliph and a pope is, I think, it's something that's really important that will come out in um, in today's uh, in today's conversation. So, uh, so there's a one of the uh, Umayyad caliphs 
um, there was a scholar, he came to him, his name was Ata. He said, he asked him, he said, oh, and so, so the scholars, they used to be in the courts of the caliphs. Um, right. There was positive to it, there's a negative to it. Um, we're going to look at the, the positive and the reason why that happened. It comes out in the story of Abu Hanifa. We'll get that in a second. But the important thing here is that he asked Ata, he says, oh, Ata, do you know, do you have any knowledge of the, of the leading scholars of the Muslim centers, the Muslim cities at this time? So that you had, you had, there was Medina, there was Mecca, there was Damascus. Um, there was Kufa, there's all of these other, uh, all, all of these cities and each city had a prominent scholar who was most respected by the people um, in that city. So he said, yes, um, I do. So he said, who is the leading scholar, the leading faqih of the people of Medina? He said, Nafir, the freed slave of Ibn Umar. Abdullah ibn Umar is the son of Umar ibn Khattab. And so he had a I mean, I, I like to say, quote unquote, slave, because I think one of the things that, that comes out from here is that as an institution, slavery was very different in this time than what yes. we're used to hearing. So uh, so he's um, uh, there's Nafir. He's one of the teachers, main teachers of Imam Malik. And he was uh, captured in a war and uh, he served uh, the, the, the son of Amr al-Khattab. He became Muslim. He was freed and he became the leading religious authority of the city of Medina. And he wasn't, and so, so he says here, the, the caliph says, um, he, didn't, he didn't ask, but it's obvious, he's not an Arab. And the Arabs, they came to him, they sat at his feet, they learned from him. Um, yeah. Then he said, what about of Mecca? And then he said that there's another, another scholar, his name is Atta ibn Abi Rabah. He said, is he an Arab or is he a Mawla? Mawla is normally a freed slave, could have a slightly different relationship as well. So he said he's a Mawla. He's a uh, no, normally a freed slave. He said, what about the people of Yemen? And he mentioned somebody called Tawus and he asked him again, is he Arabian or is he a Mawla? He said, he's a Mawla. He said, what about the people of Yamama? This is like central Arabia. <laughs> he said, Yahya ibn Abi Kathir, is he a Mawla or is he an Arabian? He said, he's a Mawla. He said, what about the people of Damascus? He said, Makhrut. He said, is he a, is he a Mawla? non-Arabian former slave or an Arabian. He said he's a Mawla. He said, what about the people of um, Iraq in between the Tigris and the Euphrates, Mesopotamia? Um, he said, Mahmoud ibn Mehran. He said, is he a Mawla or is he an Arabian? He said, he's a, he's a Mawla. He said, what about the people of Persia? He mentioned somebody else who's also a Mawla. <laughs> he asked about him. He said, what about the people of Basra? He said, Hassan al-Basri, famous Tabi'i. Yeah. He's also a Mawla. And uh, know, he's the son of slaves of the wives of the Prophet mm -hmm. and Ibn Sirin. And, uh, and then he said, what about the people of Kufa, who we're going to look at today? And he mentioned that their, their main scholar is Ibrahim al-Nakhai, who is in the chain of teachers of uh, Abu Hanifa. And he asked him, is he um, a Mawla or, or, or an Arabian? He said, no, he's, he's an Arabian. So he said, I thought that you would, you know, that there wouldn't be any Arabians left. So, <laughs> Uh, so what happened was that the, in this, um, some recent writers, um, they've, they've, uh, they, they've described this phenomenon in a very nice way. They said that the, the Prophet and his companions, they weren't people of civilization. Um, they were uh, Bedouins and came from a predominantly um, 
illiterate society, but the Prophet ﷺ taught them, and they and they made civilization. They made they made a civilization. It was very literate. Um, but the but what through these through this through the interaction that happened between the Arabians and the Persians in particular, Imam Abu Hanifa is a Persian. Um, they they came into the Muslim lands. They studied with the companions, and because they are a literate, so, so these these quote unquote slaves, many of them they were highly learned, educated people. Mm. And so when they when they became when they became Muslim, this way of analytic thinking um, and uh, systematic organization, definitions, analysis, which they're used to, it it came into um, into the Muslim world. And um, many of the Islamic sciences, the leading scholars are all, for this reason, they're not, they weren't, they weren't Arabian, they weren't Arabs. Sibawe, the founder of Arabic grammar, you know, he's, he's a Persian. He learned, uh, it wasn't his uh, native tongue. He is famous. He went to a, he wanted to study Hadith. And um, so he went and he recited a Hadith and he made a, uh, he made a mistake in a, in a, in a vowel. And it seems like the teacher was maybe a little bit bad tempered. So he got upset at him. And as he said, he, he made a grammatical mistake in the in the hadith of the Prophet. So he swore an oath. He said, I'm I'm going to learn a science because of which nobody will ever say I made a grammatical mistake again. Wow. <laughs> and he became Sibawe. Sibawe is like he's really big in Arabic grammar and grammar in general. There's no grammar anywhere in the world. Muslims are the first people who invent grammar. So so to come back to your question. Yes, um, Abu Hanifa was not an Arab, and he was, was a Persian, from, he was a Persian from what was today Iran, obviously. Um, he was uh, in the so the Persians, Persian civilization. It was a um, it, it was one of the superpowers of mm. the time, and it, and it stopped, came it came to an abrupt end um, because of uh, the Muslims. It came to an end in the time of the companions. So the Persians, they, their lands were far beyond Iran and Persian, um, influential people, they were in the neighboring lands. So he was actually, he was from a city from Kabul, present, present day Afghanistan. That's where his, uh, his, but he's Persian and his uh, grandfather and father were Persian and they came and they settled in a city called Kufa. Kufa was built um, in the time of uh, Umar ibn al-Khattab, and it was uh, built out of nothing. So it was just after the Muslims had uh, won the Battle of Qadisiyah, they'd taken Tessifon, and the Persian Empire basically came, that was, it was their capital. So because Persia was so far away, and the Muslim armies, they departed from Medina, they needed a base that was closer to uh, to Persia, so yeah. he um, they looked around. the The, the companions they didn't like to swim; they were scared of water. So, so they, he had this Tigris and Euphrates. So he uh, so that he tried to keep them on this side of the um, of the water, uh, but close as close as possible to uh, to to Persia and Mesopotamia. So they chose this place, Kufa, and they made a city. Initially, it was tents then grew into a permanent settlement and he wanted Sayyidina Umar, he wanted to keep uh, the these Arabian armies away from the Persians because he didn't want them to get used to luxury and lose their um, uh, their ruggedness and but it it grew into uh, it became very quickly it became a, an economic center um, administrative center so that's why um, it overtook there were two centers in the time of the companions there was the religious center in Medina 
but then Kufa, it became the financial military decision-making place. That's why in the time of the fourth Caliph Ali, he moved the capital from Medina to Kufa. And uh, many companions, they went there. So Abu Hanifa's father, his name is Thabit. Abu Hanifa's name is Norman. His father's name is Thabit. And when, he, when his father as a child was taken to uh, Sayyidina Ali, the Caliph Ali, and it said that he prayed for him and he made, so Kufa was full of companions and many, many companions came there and there was, was full of learning. And um, it's where there's two schools of Arabic grammar, they originated in Kufa and Basra, which was close by. Uh, so he was, um, he was born there. Abu Hanifa was born in the city of Kufa um, to a uh, influential, wealthy and influential Persian family. They were cloth merchants. Um, and uh, and yeah, so that's where um, that's where. So he, is it true that he would have met at some point in his life? The reports were that he actually met some of the companions themselves. These are actual people who knew the prophet, had seen the prophet, who died upon Islam. They he, he actually knew them or met them at least. At, when he was young, so they they used to have the scholars of hadith. They have conditions for narrating hadith, and they differ. So if there's some hadith that are narrated by companions who are children, so Abdullah ibn Abbas, um, there's a famous hadith, the Prophet ﷺ had him sitting behind him on a, on a camel. And uh, uh, he said to him, oh, little boy, I'm going to teach you some words to remember them. And, you know, be conscious of Allah, Allah, Allah will take care of you. So uh, the um, famous hadith, but the, but the point here is that he's a young boy. And so there's many hadith that are narrated by companions and they heard them when they were young children, eight, nine, ten okay. years old, Anas ibn Malik, one of, one of them. Um, uh, but the, and so they did that, but in the next, in the, in the succeeding generations, when somebody would come and say that I heard the Prophet say this, then in the next generation, the scholars of Hadith, they differed regarding how old um, somebody needs to be in order yeah. for them to be able to narrate. Because yeah. it's now, now it's an abstract thing. In the lives of the companions, yeah. it's physical you remember and it's the most important person in existence yeah, but so, wasn't just some ordinary child he was an exceptionally gifted uh, and talented person so he could well have understood uh, and appreciated what was happening when he met these eminent personages the companions of the prophet i'm just saying he's not like just some random child he's yeah he's a formidable mind yeah so it was he, he met he met some of the companions towards the end of their lives but he didn't he didn't narrate hadith from them for this reason because the people of Kufa they said you have to be 20 years old uh, in order for you you have to hear something when you're 20 years old in order to be able to um, narrate it to the next generation so in terms of hadith his his hadith narrations come from other from from uh, people uh, not companions and mostly from from not not the followers but the next next generation but he met he met companions Anas ibn Malik, one of them, as a child. That dates him. That's also, it dates him almost at the beginning of Islam, basically. Uh, yeah. The generation after Woods, which is incredibly early. Yeah. Very early. Yeah, he's the earliest of the four um, four imams. Of course, just just for those who don't appreciate, I mean, there were no four schools then of uh, jurisprudence. Uh, they simply didn't no. exist. It wasn't even the Hanfi school uh, early on. So this is before all the the Sunni jurisprudence had been developed. Usul had happened. It was 
simply extraordinary individuals like uh, Abu Hanifa uh, making their ruling, doing their doing their rulings, and so on. So this really predates what we la later understand as the developed Sunni Islam. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Gosh. So, um, so how influential exactly was uh, Abu Hanifa in his time? I mean, how much of a leader was he? So, um, so he's. Uh, I think what used to happen, and it still happens to some degree, but it used to happen more, um, is that if somebody is a religious scholar and religion is important to the lives of people around them, then they are naturally going to be in a position of leadership because they're, if they say that, you know, just to take like an extreme example, if they were to say that um, nobody listened to the ruler, okay, um, so Abu Hanifa didn't do that, of course. Um, but if, if they were to say that, then they would wield influence. People would listen to them and they wouldn't listen to the caliph because the caliph is not like the Pope. The caliph is not a, um, he's not, he's not he doesn't represent the religion he, he his role they had um executive roles but the uh but the 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 law that they ruled by that law was developed through a process of scholarly reasoning by the major religious authorities of the time who were independent scholars and they had the support of the people and so the caliph in order for him to rule successfully, he had to rule by that law. Otherwise, people wouldn't right. want him in place. So, so as an Islamic ruler, just to clarify, he didn't make up laws that like a modern ruler might do and say, oh, well, yeah. I, I, I as the ruler would want this law and that law. He followed the law that was established and codified by independent scholars. This is the Sharia, of course. It wasn't some other law. So it was yeah. based on re revelation. It's based on the Quran, based on the Sunnah, uh, which yeah. includes Hadith and so on and so on. Yeah, yeah, and so uh, so I think to a, I think a better a better contrast would be uh, would be in the medieval period in in uh, in Christian lands where the king you had the rule of kings like you explained and so so it's so the the there was no rule of kings so they weren't they weren't people who they weren't absolutist they didn't say uh, you know that the divine the right the divine right of kings like Charles exactly. Charles II, uh, uh, interesting, I should mention Charles II um, <laughs> today. Um, but no, he, he, uh, Charles I, his, his father, uh, very much believed in the divine right of kings. And uh, it actually triggered a civil war in England. And he ended up having his head chopped off because he was so intransigent and arrogant. And he just he stood on his authority as divine king. You know, I'm appointed by God. You can't touch me. But that's not what the caliph was like. You're saying the caliph uh, isn't a, a divinely appointed caliph. He, he is a successor to the prophet himself and is accountable in some way to others or to the law anyway, to the, the Sharia. Is that right? Or? Yeah. So, so theoretically, they were supposed to be elect. They were supposed to be elected by um by uh, influential people. So by the time of Abu Hanifa, that election process, which happened in the time of the companions, um, and uh, but after after that, it turned into a dynasty and there was hereditary succession. So, but there was still a, um, on paper, um, a certain kind of um, uh, people would install them in, in, into, and, and, the, and, and the representatives of the people who used to, 
um, install them into government would be prominent religious scholars. Uh, because yeah. these were the people who were seen by the caliphs to be to represent uh, to represent um, public will, um, and it was like that. And so this 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 created a um, a relationship, unavoidable relationship between the the caliph and the scholars, particularly the scholars of of Sharia, like uh, like Abu Hanifa, because um, if the caliph can get um, can get some uh, uh, some scholars in his pocket, then um, he can rule um, very conveniently and with great power and great effectiveness. So there's a uh, so there's a move. There's a constant move throughout this this period of caliphs to try and do that. And many many scholars did end up going into their pockets, but they they didn't they didn't um, people recognize that. And so, uh, so the, the the scholars who became influential, who wrote books, who were studied, who who whose works were studied, these were always um, um, or predominantly. I'll we'll talk about Abu Hanifa's student. Uh, they were predominantly independent scholars. So Abu Hanifa, for this reason, he's very influential. So Abu Hanifa, he is the preeminent scholar of Kufa, the student of the preeminent scholar named Hamad. And Kufa is an important administrative military economic center. So people, they all go to him. So when there was a, uh, there were several incidents like this. The most famous of them is just after the Abbasid revolution. So Abu Hanifa straddled the Umayyads and the Abbasids. And there was a, um, the Abbasid revolution was very um, bloody. The first, uh, the first ruler, his um, title is As-Safah, which means the shedder of blood. Um, and he probably took that title to strike fear into the hearts of people. So he didn't rule for that long. After him, he had his successor. His successor is Abu Jafar al-Mansur. And there's a famous um, a series of events that took place between Abu Hanifa and Abu Jafar al-Mansur. So Abu Jafar, he wanted Abu Hanifa to be the chief judge. So this but, idea of chief judge is something that's a later invention. It's not there in the in the in the time of the companions, but it's like chief judge means that you are it's like the Supreme Court. So you have judges, and then you have you can appeal to to the highest level. So the highest level is the is the chief judge. So um, Abu Hanifa he, um, he he refused, and there's many there's many stories that are told. Relation there are stories that they're they're related. Through different chains of transmission, one of one of the famous ones it shows his wit is he said um, he said he apologized said I'm not qualified to be a judge, and um, Abu Jafar al Mansur said, got enraged he said you're lying, how how can Abu Hanifa not be qualified? And so he said well if I'm lying then I'm not qualified yes. because the liar is qualified to be a judge. <laughs> oh, true. Very, good, very good. Check, is um, like yes, there checkmate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he wasn't happy. Um, he also there's um, there are there's there's another event where he um, he was um, so in this it was a turbulent time so there's been a revolution and you're trying to uh, make sure that people listen to you and um, there's armies that will execute and do all kinds of things to make sure that that people listen listen to the ruler so he made a uh, a treaty with with a an agreement a verbal agreement with with a, a particular city Abu Jafar al-Mansur and he said that if you rebel then you agree that I can kill all of you and so they rebelled 
And so he called a number of scholars to his um, to his court. And so now you can understand why what the scholars are doing in the court. Um, it's it's a two way thing. So on one side, it's that the ruler, you know, wants to kind of influence them and show people that 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 they're on his side. But on the but on the other on the other side, it's because religion is important, and the ruler knows that in order for his he can't make law. So in order for his um, decisions to be obeyed by people, he needs to have approval of the scholars. People don't see him as a scholar. He's not seen as a pope. No, people no. are not going to. So, um, so there was other scholars who said that. Well, that's what that's what they agreed to, and um, and so you know, go ahead and do what you want. And Abu Hanifa is, um, and there's a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where he said that that Muslims should keep their conditions. Al-Muslimun ala shurutihim. And so Abu Hanifa, he said. Um, this is one of his brave stances. He said that when they when they said that, they gave you they gave you authority to do something that you can never have authority to do because you can't just go around killing people without reason. There's only very well defined reasons for um, execution. Very few high standards of proof. Um, and uh, this appears everybody. He told everybody to go, and then he. Um, listened to Abu Hanifa, um, but he tried to make him chief judge, and Abu Hanifa refused. And so, to him, this was um, an affront because now Abu Hanifa, when he's refusing to be the judge, and everybody knows, you know, Abu Hanifa has refused to be. Panic. You know, he's not under control. He's just out there being independently minded, which is shocking. <laughs> yeah, but also, if people find out, and people did find out. Then oh, it's he, like a rebuff. He defied the caliph. He defied him and said, "No." Or, or the caliph, he doesn't approve of the caliph. Abu yeah. Hanifa doesn't approve of the caliph. Yes, yeah, so it depends. I suppose the reasons why he said no, but yeah, the, the implication could be that he doesn't approve of the ruler. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't explicit. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't explicitly say that. But but people will talk, and so it, it doesn't look good anyway. So no. he was um, he was imprisoned. He was um, beaten. Um, Severely, and he he didn't he he refused um, to to become and that was some biographers say it was the cause of his death, and this happened more than once. Abu Hanifa he did this with a with another um, with another ruler before him as well. Um, so uh, so I mean, so I think like this is um, so, so what this shows is that this you know this eponymous founder of the Hanafi school who's revered by the Muslims. This is it's it's there's no institutionalized church that's been bought out by a by a king, and uh, but it's independent people, um, not even an Arabian um, people. There, there's some reports that says that Abu Hanifa's ancestors were slaves, but others, his grandson said said they weren't. But even if he were, uh, just the 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 way that early Islamic civilization, knowledge-based, uh, Sharia-based uh, civilization, civilization worked, it wouldn't have been, um, wouldn't have been a blemish on his, uh, it wouldn't tarnish his thing. He's still, he's influential. So this, it says something about how um, um, Islamic law, Sharia, it was um, developed. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, so I, I mean, it's one of, um, it's one of the reasons why I... Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's to compare what was going on uh, in Europe during this time of uh, the life of Abu uh, Hanifa. And historians have called this time the Dark Ages. This is the early medieval period, the Dark Ages in Europe. And with good reason, uh, after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, 
uh, it was a time marked by great economic and intellectual and cultural decline. So the West mm. is really going into a, uh, Europe, I mean, is going to a very dark area at this time when Islam is flourishing intellectually and, and in every other way. But the, the, one or two interesting points, nonetheless, uh, uh, almost at the same time as Abu Hanifa uh, in 773 AD, to use the Western calendar, um, yeah. there was King Offa of Mercia. Now, he was an early English king. Talking a lot about English kings at the moment, trying not to reference the obvious re what's going on in the world. Uh, but anyway, um, he minted a coin that imitated a dinar. Now, dinar was the main coin of the Islamic Empire at that time, medieval Islamic empires. They were called dinars. And the interesting thing about this coin, which uh, I've seen, it exists in London, um, it bears the Shahada. Now, this is the Islamic Declaration of Faith. So an English royal coin um, uh, in gold, is made of gold, actually says that there is no God but God, and Muhammad is the prophet of God. And it's on display uh, at the British Museum, uh, and uh, it's extraordinary. But why did he do this? I, I think the center of gravity at that time was so much in the Muslim world, commercially, yeah. culturally, economically yeah. especially, that the, the English monarch felt that it was a good idea to produce uh, gold coinage uh, that would be usable in the Mediterranean area. But the, the, the coinage actually had the Shahada on it. And uh, you can just Google it, King Offa, O-F-F-A, coin. And you can see pictures of it online. And it's most remarkable that English royal coinage uh, had the Islamic uh, creed, the Islamic um, declaration of, of faith. Uh, so this is at the time of Abu Hanifa, or just the yeah. very end of his life, by the way. And I'm sure people are saying, you know, like, we should be like the Muslims. We should be free like the Muslims. We should have economic freedoms like the Muslims. We should have the freedom to speak up to the government like the Muslims do. We should have all, and that's where all of their, um, you know, their Islamic uh, you know, prosperity and economic uh, progress and scientific progress, it's, it came from, like, it was, that's where it came from. It was a very um, different time. It was a very different time. Yes, the, uh, <laughs> that's a different story. But um, how long, uh, sorry, how did Abu Hanifa make a living exactly? And what, what was his day job if he had one? Yeah, so um, Abu Hanifa, he came from a family of cloth merchants. And at this time, you know, this is pre-industrial uh, revolution, um, cloth is a very expensive commodity. So in the fiqh books um, that were written in the time of Abu Hanifa, they actually had a section that described what you should do if you don't, how, how, how to pray if you don't have any clothes to wear. So, which means that this would, this would happen because people would only have one set of clothes, maybe they're being washed and, mm -hmm. clothes, and clothing is expensive. It's a very expensive yeah. thing. Kind of expensive, so, yeah. so he was a, so, so it's a, he sold luxury goods and which means yeah. that he was a very wealthy man and he used to, um, so that means he didn't need anybody. In fact, um, he used to support, uh, other people, other scholars, and one of the um, one of the famous um, so there's a uh, one of the famous one of his most prominent students. His name is Abu Yusuf, and Abu Yusuf is he goes on to become the chief judge. Not like Abu Hanifa refused. Abu Hanif Abu Yusuf accepted for a reason. We'll talk about that. He goes on to become the chief judge of Harun al-Rashid, and uh, but he during the time of Abu Hanifa was poor. So he would come to the, the sessions of Abu Hanifa. He wanted to learn religious knowledge. And his father would say to him that 
Abu Hanifa is a well-to-do man, um, but if you go and you study and you don't earn a living, then you won't, uh, you know, you, how will you make your ends meet? And so he didn't show up for a couple of times and he came back and Imam Abu Hanifa asked about him. This is another great thing about Imam Abu Hanifa, how he was as a teacher. Um, uh, so he, he asked about him and he said, uh, and he found out that he had financial troubles. He said, uh, I'll take care of you. And so he gave him um, a sack of coins. He says, when it runs out, then tell me. But, wow. Abu, uh, Abu, but Abu Yusuf said that before it ever ran out, somehow he would find out and he would just replenish it and replenish it. And um, he went on and he became you know, one of the greatest scholars of his time. And so the, and all of that is done, um, you know, just as in one of the greatest acts of charity of, of, uh, of Abu Hanifa. Abu Hanifa used to, had a very interesting um, way of teaching. So he, he used to teach in the mosque, in the Grand Mosque of Kufa. So at, at that time, the mosques, they used to be um, bubbling with uh, learning and, and, and religious activity. So his story of how he became a scholar is that he was initially he was just a cloth merchant. And there was a famous Hadith scholar. His name is Ashabi. He saw Abu Hanifa, spoke to him, got to know him. And he was passing by and he, and he asked him, uh, which, uh, which people do you visit? And Imam Abu Hanifa, he said that I visit so-and-so, he mentioned some cloth merchants. He said, I'm not talking about business. I'm talking about religious scholars. Who, who do you visit? He said, well, I don't visit that many. He said, you should. And, um, and you know, a man of your intelligence and, um, and uh, your intelligence should, should study. And this is what intelligent people at this time did. And so he said that, that uh, sometimes people say something, it influences you. So it influenced him and he turned to learning. And he went through, he studied various things. Eventually he had his teacher, Hamad, who was his, he studied, Imam Hanifa, it's, he studied with like 4,000 teachers. Um, that doesn't mean that he st studied with them a lot, maybe just sat with them once or something. Um, but, uh, but he had many, many different people he learned from. But the person he learned from the most was Hamad. He studied with him for 18 years. And he used to teach in the mosque of Kufa. So Abu Hanifa used to teach in the mosque of Kufa. And he had a circle um, and people would come and they narrate, they tell that when the way that he would teach is that he would, there would be an issue that would, that would be um, an issue of, of Sharia, of sacred law that would be um, put out for discussion. And, um, and there would be uh, scholars in attendance and somebody would say, well, I think it should be like this. And somebody else would say, no, I think it should be like this. And voices would rise and there would be debate and everything. And he would, everybody would have a chance. And at the end, when his turn came, he would, um, he would, uh, he would give his own opinion after listening to everybody else's and everybody would listen to him and then record what he had said. So um, it's a very um, hands-off kind of uh, teaching style and encouraging people to think and come to their own conclusions. And many of his students, they, they, they are, even after they uh, heard him, they disagreed with him. And that was to be expected. So yeah. in Hanafi school, um, there's, um, they, you have uh, in, in books of Hanafi fiqh, they talk about the Imam, which is Abu Hanifa, and they talk about the Sahibain, the two, the two companions of Abu Hanifa. These are Abu Yusuf and Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani. Yeah. And they frequently disagree. So when you study Hanafi fiqh, you study, this is what Imam Abu Hanifa says, 
And this is what he says. And this is what he's. And this is the reasoning for this. And this is the reasoning for this. I can confirm this is the case. This is uh, the, the first book of Islam of the companions, the Kitab al Athar by Abu Hanifa, and um, it is basically a collection of hadith. Um, and this is a modern English translation, a modern English edition. And he actually uh, obviously has uh, uh, his uh, views on uh, on various rulings uh, on how to live your life and so on. But it also mentions when. Um, Abu Yusuf and others disagreed with him. His, his direct yeah. students actually disagreed. So you can you can see uh, uh, Abu Hanifa said this, and then Abu Yusuf disagreed. <laughs> um, yeah. The fact that he allowed that, or, or it, it was permissible, there was a certain kind of openness and a tolerance of diversity and disagreement uh, amongst such. And Abu Yusuf, of course, went on to become a, a great scholar in his own right, as did the other student whose name I can't remember how to pronounce. Yeah, um, Muhammad al-Hassan. He was the teacher of Rabbi Shafi'i. So, uh, but one of the teachers. But also, like, you know, you mentioned the Pope. And yes. isn't this, like, such a huge contrast? So Imam Abu Hanifa is not infallible. And he's teaching his students he's not infallible. And his students know that he's not infallible. And there's no, so there's no, like, infallible authority anywhere enforcing any, 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 any kind of, position but there's but there's but there's scholarship and there's and so there's the the best positions in a culture of learning and intelligence and inquiry and critique they win out naturally and so what you end up having is you have you end up having, having high quality um scholarship if i can put this in a very kind of layman's terms it just strikes me how very civilized all this is you know yeah uh, religion apart uh, this kind of uh, open discourse of uh, of presenting views and having disagreements and you, you're not kind of condemned or anathematized or sent to sent off to prison and to be tortured um it's very very civilized and quite rare i i don't mean in the world in the history of religions is not normally i think what happens um <laughs> certainly not in the christian europe where the slightest deviation uh, from orthodoxy, be it Catholic or later, you know, Protestant orthodoxy, would land you in severe trouble. Uh, but here we have a tolerance of plurality of opinions um, and disagreements, which were kind of institutionalized by the great founders of these jurisprudential schools, uh, Abu Hanifa, eponymously, of course. So, yeah. yeah. Um, sorry. Yeah, so I think that um, I wanted to also talk a little bit about Abu Yusuf. Mm. And uh, yes, well, I was going to ask you about that. I, I mean, you said that Abu Yusuf went on uh, to become a, a judge um, for Harun al Rashid, but this is very different from the way of his teacher. And it suggests Abu Abu Hanifa didn't want to coddle up to power; he wanted independence. But his his student Abu Yusuf actually became a a judge. So, how do we account for this change, apparent change in in behavior? So, I want to show you a book. It's called um, it's called Kitab al Kharaj. It's written by uh, Abu Yusuf, the student of uh, of Abu Hanifa. So Kharaj Kharaj is a kind of taxation. So he's written Kitab al Kharaj, the book of um, collecting a certain kind of tax, and he is uh, he's telling. Uh, I'm going to read just a little part of the introduction, but he's telling Harun Rashid the Caliph how he can and cannot collect taxes. So there's there's hadith of the Prophet وسلم, that um, speak, uh, that censure tax collectors. Tax collectors at this time are evil people because you have the 
kings, divine right of kings, and they need money. So they have their uh, minions who go and knock on people's doors and say, give me a bunch of money. People say, no, if you don't, you're in the dungeons. And the tax collector gets a cut. So the more he takes, the more he... Yes. So they're, they're like these, um, these, like the evil people. And this is how taxation is happening. Um, so in the time of the Prophet, this is kind of like a, a tangent, but it's um, extremely um, relevant that the, basically the only, the only tax that was collected was zakat. And zakat was, and he wasn't allowed to take zakat. The Prophet wasn't allowed to take zakat. And it was, and when he would send people to the Bedouin tribes and, and, and when they became Muslim, telling them of zakat, he would tell them it's taken from the rich among you and returned to the poor among you. Um, so just the institution of zakat, it's, it's just amazing, um, uh, Sharia-wise, and when you look in the dark age. So what is, if you could just, so just if, if you have a brief word, what is zakat for those who might not know? What, 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 why is it significant? Yeah. So zakat is a pillar, one of the pillars of Islam, and it's an act of worship. And um, Islam is the only religion where almsgiving is an obligatory act of worship. So just as, so it's normally you think of worship as prostration, prayer, but one of the acts of worship that every Muslim has to do is they have to take 2.5% um, of their wealth every year and give it to the poor. And, wow. um, and so in the time of the Prophet, this was, um, this was uh, collected and distributed at the state level and uh, efficient distribution, but he himself didn't take anything, wasn't permissible for him to take anything. And it was well-defined and he would send people to collect, collect zakat and he would tell them don't, so they, they, would, they would pay zakat in animals because it was a, um, a ancient Arabian society, the most valuable wealth is camels. And, and so he would tell them, don't take the best camels, don't take the best sheep, but take like middle, 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 uh, uh, average, moderate, and then it would be redistributed, and it was like the formation of a just society. So, redistribution of wealth, basically, from the richest yeah. to those who needed it most. Yeah. yeah. So in this in this time, there's a in the time of um, Abu Yusuf. In addition to zakat, there's other kinds of taxation, mostly on agricultural wealth, um, mm -hmm. and Mesopotamia is. Uh, is uh, like an agricultural powerhouse of the of the world in between the two, two uh, Tigris and Euphrates. Yeah, that's, and that's in modern day Iraq, of course, is where yeah. is on the map. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was uh, it was very wealthy. In 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 this time, it, if wealth isn't in terms of oil, but wealth is in terms of how much agricultural resources you control. So, so when, when, so, so the Muslims in the time of Abu Yusuf, they are in control of this most fertile place in the world. And there was taxation that came to the government and it goes back. There's justification from hadiths about the amounts and statements of the companions. But the important thing is that he is, the, the caliph isn't um, sending uh, tax collectors to arbitrarily take any amount of wealth that he wants them to take. But he is, uh, there's a religious scholar, student of Abu Hanifa, and Abu Hanifa is a man of integrity. And so uh, Abu Yusuf um, um, carries that integrity. And he is, he writes a book, he writes an entire book to tell Harun al-Rashid how to and how not to collect taxes. So here's, this is an introduction.
and I, I just wanted to read some sections from from the from the from the introduction. So he, uh, the, at the top of the uh, of this page, he says, "Haza ma kataba bihi Abu Yusuf rahimahullah ila Amir al-Mu'minin Harun al-Rashid." Said this is this is from a um, a copyist uh, later on. He's saying that this is what Abu Yusuf, may Allah have mercy on him, wrote to the the leader of the Muslims, Harun al-Rashid. And so he makes um, he makes uh, he prays for for him, and um, and then he says that the Amir al-Mu'minin he asked me to put write a book for him that he could act on in uh, in collecting this kharaj kharaj tax, and um, and also on there's some zakat zakat is also in here in in in, in collecting all of this and so this is this is very significant so so what uh, Harun al Rashid is saying you tell me how I can and cannot cannot collect 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 taxes and so he's wow. telling him and um, and so he he says that um, uh, and then in the in, in the in the in the in the in the third paragraph here he says. He said, O oh, Amir al-Mu'mineen, O oh, leader of the believers, verily Allah and all praise is due to him has, has, has um, given you a tremendous position. Its reward is great and its, uh, its punishment, if you don't, if you don't uh, do it properly, is the worst of punishments. He has made you responsible for the Muslims and you uh, you you wake up in the morning and you go to sleep in the evening, and you uh, you you Allah Allah has made you responsible. He's going to ask you on the day of judgment about all of these people who who are under under your charge. He has entrusted them to you. He has um, made you their ruler, and uh, and he uh, you know he uh, you know he admonishes him. Um, and he tells him to do good deeds and don't delay doing the good deeds of today to tomorrow. He tells him to pray, and uh, he says, um, "It's just, it's just, it's just, it's just amazing." And so, and and so, and this he writes it, and it's published, and people all over the world, and for the rest of human history, they copy this book, which begins in this way. And this second page is like the next page after this. It's just he's just admonishing him. And uh, and uh, and so and he's he's basically he's placing um, limits on uh, on what uh, Harun al Rashid can and cannot cannot do, and this is publicized. Everybody knows about it. So uh, Harun al Rashid says, "Hey, everybody, this is what Abu Yusuf told me to do." And everybody, I want you to, I want you, I think, I, I think yes, it's- Harun al Rashid was very different then from uh, his predecessors, clearly. Uh, so the situation had changed radically, whereas Abu Hanifa. Uh, rightly, perhaps it was, uh, uh, and wisely didn't, uh, get, you know, get, get in with the powers that be. Here we, uh, with Harun, we had a very different ruler who was listening and wanting to to fear God and to do the right thing. Yeah, I mean, that's they, there's some really good stories that are that are told about him. Um, I, but I'm also like, so I I, I admire him, Harun al Rashid. I don't want to, I never want to be in his shoes, you know, but. Yeah. Um, but there's also, I think, and also that you should. It's good to have a little bit of healthy skepticism too, because at the end of the day, he is, he does know that when he does this, he wins the favor of people. So, mm -hmm. um, so there's there's going to be an element of that too. And inshallah, he was sincere, and he's rewarded by uh, by God for for doing the good things he did. Things were his uh, people who came after him. There were there were some problems with his sons. 
um, yeah. but it went up and down. But we had we had good we had good good bad. But but the I think the important thing to take away is that um, is that in this time when you have this independent body of lawmaking scholarship that is independent of the ruler and it's uh, it, it it is people follow it and and the laws that they write are actually implemented in society mm-hmm. um, they they are natural intermediaries between uh, the masses of Muslims and the rulers um, and rulers need to need to listen to them they need to and so it's like a check it's like a, it's a huge check on power but wow. what we have in the modern in the modern age is that with the decline in religiousness in Muslim um, countries, this whole institution, I don't like to call it institution because it's like independent, but this this whole um, group of people, they basically disappear. And when they disappear, now Muslims, they become vulnerable to, um, to dictatorships and oppression, absolutist rule. And uh, and it's like it's the loss. This is how when 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 uh, when Muslim societies become less religious and Sharia is less um, important in the lives of people, they um, they make themselves susceptible to um, to being oppressed by. Um, and then you have the modern state and modern technology, and that just adds to it. Mm. Um, Very depressing. So um, coming back to uh, Abu Hanifa, I mean, so how exactly did uh, we go from Abu Hanifa to the Hanafi school? And the Hanafi school is the most widely followed jurisprudential legal school uh, understanding of Sharia in the world um, today and has been for yeah. many areas of, of the Muslim world. So how do we go from Abu Hanifa to the Hanafi school? Yeah, so the, the school... Um, uh, the school, it was, um, it takes a while to develop. So what uh, all of the schools, they, so you have, at this point, you have figures who are recognized um, as for their scholarship by a society that values religious knowledge and scholarship. So this means that only the best names will come to the top. And then you have their students, Abu Yusuf and, uh, and, uh, Ibn Hassan and others as well. And then they have students and then their students have students. And so there were other people like Abu Hanifa. But over uh, over time, uh, the there were four, the four schools that we that are now known as the four schools. These are the schools whose students and students and students and students, they, it, it's a tradition that continued. The others, they um, they died out. People sometimes give political reasons for it, but I think I think I, I think it's just a uh, it's a description of quality. And uh, so over time, when you have lots of people, lots of intelligent people studying and congregating and disputing and and engaging, then the the best um, uh, the best uh, scholarly um, uh, accomplishments come to be recognized, and then a school develops. So, so around this, you have student, 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 student. At every stage, there's critique, there's improvement, there's organization, and then you have summaries. So, somebody comes. There, there's this huge, um, you know, hundreds of people who have um, 
opinions within the school. It's uh, you know they they agree, they disagree, and then somebody comes and they summarize it and they say that if you want to um, study this way of uh, of deriving legal rulings, then start with this, start with the basics, and then do this, and then do this, and then do this, and then you'll you'll come to a book like Kitabul Asar that you were showing of, of Abu Hanifa, and that this becomes a it becomes a school um, over um, um, over the centuries. And as a plurality of opinion, it's not like everyone has the same view. Right from the beginning, we have Abu Yusuf disagreeing, who's a disciple or companion or student of Abu Hanifa, disagreeing with his master. So you, you get the sense of plurality and diversity of views within a school. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So um, I've heard uh, Muslims today uh, say that uh, Abu Hanifa was weak in Hadith. Uh, what's going on there? <laughs> Well, you just held up a book of hadith, you know, <laughs> so um, ascribe to him. Yeah, so Abu Hanifa, I think um, from the, he was a very uh, influential man, a uh, mm. very intelligent man with many students. He solved many problems and um, he was an original creative thinker. And from the earliest of times, um, there were people who, um, there were some scholars of hadith, um, Ibn Hibban is one of them, and some others who criticized him um, based on hadith, saying he was weak in hadith and didn't have knowledge. And it seems to go against um, some hadith that they knew. They didn't understand how he um, how he came to his conclusions. To come to a conclusion, you need a lot more than hadith. You need um, uh, there's a whole uh, methodology of ijtihad that uh, that you need. So they weren't as qualified as him, but they were good in, 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 in hadith. And so they, they made certain statements and these statements came to be transmitted over the ages. Um, and uh, they were, when the schools developed, nobody really paid attention to them. But in, in recent times, uh, there's been all of these old statements have kind of been dug up. And um, so to me, it's like, uh, it seems, uh, you know, it's it's like I, th I think an example that I sometimes use is, you know, if somebody comes and says that says to you that well, this theory of relativity is a really crazy theory. It means that if you're going really fast, time will 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 travel at a different speed for you than it does for a normal uh, person. And so and so, you know, how can you be so um, silly and and uh, and you know, don't use your mind and just reject this. And so we immediately, because of our regard for the authorities of science and physics and Einstein, we dismiss this. Um, but uh, but what's happening here is that I don't think I, th I think that we we no longer have a an appreciation for the scholarship of people like Abu Hanifa, and because of that, we become susceptible to. Um, uh, being influenced by these kinds of um, objections. I would recommend somebody, they want to learn the Hanafi school and Hadith and how it works. Um, I have a friend, a young British scholar, Sheikh Tabriz Azam. He runs um, Irshad, uh, Irshad, irshad.co.uk. Um, and he teaches um, Hanafi, um, Hanafi studies there. Um, I um, highly recommend that for everybody. Oxford University in some way? Um, he has students from there, uh, but he's he has his own independent um, institution right. okay. where he teaches. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe, that's, maybe, maybe I'll give you the link and you can put it in the. Yeah, that's the, a good idea actually because I'm not familiar. With yeah.
with his work, unfortunately, I'll put it in the description below so people can investigate that further. Hanafi school, Hanafi scholar, I should say, in Britain uh, in today's world. So uh, the tradition uh, lives on, of course. So, well, thank you very much, uh, Sheikh Hamza Karamali, uh, for your time and you, your knowledge uh, and expertise on this subject. Very interesting subject, very important. And I hope this will lead to greater interest in people to explore uh, the works of the eponymous founder of the Hanifi School. And of course, there are three other schools as well. Let's not forget that came that came later uh, as, as well. So uh, thank you very much, sir. Thank you for having me, Paul. Oh, it was a pleasure. Until next time. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.